Welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Few people in the world have a better understanding of the power and potential of networks than Helen Bevan. As a strategic advisor for the National Health Service Horizons in England, Helen Bevan is known around the world for teaching people and organizations about how to use the interconnections between them to galvanize learning, improvement, and large-scale change. Helen is a social media maven who teaches first and foremost about how human connection is the key to making networks work. She's also the perfect person for us to talk with about what is happening in the United Kingdom as NHS England celebrates its 75th anniversary this year. I must say that the National Health Service in the UK is of enormous interest in the United States as it is the premier example in the world of a single-payer government-run healthcare system. We talked with Helen, who's a longtime friend of IHI, at this year's International Forum on Quality and Safety in Healthcare in Copenhagen, Denmark. Helen Bevan, welcome to Turn On The Lights. Let's start with uh, educating ourselves and our audience a bit about the National Health Service in England. Yeah. There's a lot of conceptions and probably almost equal number of misconceptions in the United States about what the National Health Service, the NHS, is and how it works. And could you just give us a little primer on it? What, how do you think of what the National Health Service is in England and the UK as a whole? Okay. Yeah. Um, question. Yeah. I'll do my best. So the National Health Service is a national health service. So in England, the NHS provides care for 54 million people and care in its totality. So from maternity care and um, babies um, being born and all the way through until end of life care and everything that goes with that. To everybody in England. To everybody in England. And the NHS, I think, uh, provides about 94% of all the care in England. Well, so, so the other 6% is like a small, very small private sector. Yeah, it's a very, it's, but even the private sector, most of its work is supporting the NHS. So outside of the NHS, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a very small. And does it support, does the NHS cover or take care of people in places that are not hospitals, at offices, do they have aged care homes or nursing homes or otherwise? Is that also part of it or is that something totally different? We have two systems. We have a healthcare system and we have a social care system, and they're different. So the healthcare system in all its entirety, okay, primary care, family physician, mental health services, hospital services, and so on, is provided by the NHS free of charge at a point when you need it. Free of charge? Yes, free of charge. Nearly everything that the NHS provides is free of charge. So Somebody pays. Yeah, it's a tax-funded service. So it basically means we, we pay for the NHS as part of our general tax. So people with a high income pay more in tax for the NHS and people on a low income um, wouldn't pay anything. So because you have a progressive tax system, yes. which your, your income is, the amount you pay is, goes up with your income. Yes, yes. So, the, so at the point of care, when you go into a doctor's office for an emergency room, do you have to pay anything out of pocket, the copay or anything along those lines? There's a very small number of copays. 
So you have to co-pay if you go to your family physician and you have a prescription, but it's a standard amount, which is a, a, around about $10. But you don't have to pay that if you're over 60 or you're in full-time education or you're pregnant. So only about 20% of, of prescriptions do people have to pay the $10. If, if, the, if the care is free, don't people like overuse it? They just show up all the time and they, I guess we'd be afraid they'd abuse the system. That is the fear. Right? That is the fear, right. yes. Yeah. Uh, no companies that sort of the idea that people would just come in and use the service whenever they need to, or but uh, they had more than they need to. Yeah. But we have the opposite problem. Mm. We have the problem that people don't use the NHS enough. And in the sense that when people have got symptoms, very often people say, oh, I don't want to bother my doctor. Very often it's a question of actually encouraging people. And I think particularly people in minorities or people with low incomes to actually use a service. So a problem, not unlike the problem we have in the United States, where people are not accessing care. We have we might have that problem for different reasons. We yeah. Have insurance. A lot of yeah. People don't have insurance. They don't have coverage. They have high copays. A lot of point of care fees essentially yes. that cause people to not access care. But even without those fees, people still you said you still have this challenge of yeah. getting people into care. Yeah. Sometimes people think. That like universal coverage is such a panacea, and and we have universal coverage, and yet we still have really significant issues around health equity. Yeah, so we've got nets on both sides of the Atlantic yeah. Ocean here. You've got you're talking about uh, one of our big. A lot of people t discuss the idea if we were to lower co-pays or make care free at the point of care, people will overuse it. That sounds like that's not happening in your system. No, that doesn't happen. We also have this perception in the U.S. that. If we move to a single payer or if we move to health insurance for everyone, universal health insurance, that people will come into care. That also seems like it's a yeah. myth. Yeah. It's not on, on, the, on the other hand, I would personally much rather be part of a system with universal coverage than one without them, with all the inequities and problems that it brings. There is a story in many among many United States that the uh, British National Health Service you, it includes long waiting times. So you either you wait forever to get your hip replacement, or there's even I've heard people say that if you're over 65, you can't get dialysis, or your care is heavily rationed. How, how do you respond to that? So what I'd say is that in a system, yeah, you have to prioritize, and uh, you have to make decisions um, on the basis that if you're going to provide one kind of care, like you're going to provide a new, very expensive cancer drug, then it isn't a finite amount of money. So in a sense, if we're going to spend money on that, then we're not going to spend money on something else. Mm -hmm. And I think people in our system, like, like, like we understand that and it's part of how it is. There are long waiting lists in our system at the moment. There haven't always been long waiting lists. A few years ago, we got to a we got to a point with waiting list reduction efforts around the time of or just before austerity hit in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. What do you mean by austerity? Okay. Yeah. So basically, when the global financial crash came, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, um, it meant that the kinds of increases that we've been seeing mm -hmm. in our health and care system in England um, stopped happening. And in a sense, funding was flat for, for quite a few years. And so we had longer waiting times when we went into the pandemic and waiting times have got longer post-pandemic. Do, do you have a feeling that people go without needed care in England that uh, people who want and need care can't get it? So I think it depends on what you mean by can't get it in a sense that 
but the service is there for everybody. Sometimes people have to wait for longer than we would ideally want them to. But I do think it's it tries to be a fair system. We have a we have an organisation called NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which evaluates every new treatment and every new drug and says whether the NHS should be providing it or not. We have an organisation called NICE, which is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. And they evaluate every new drug, every new treatment, so that we can understand whether that should be provided by the NHS um, or not in terms of the both the efficacy, the value of the, the treatment and, and, and how much it costs. I think the ability of people in the NHS in England to get care that, that makes sense, I think, is a really strong one. So the idea that we don't have this concept of bias in our system, really, we talked about this actually on another program, and there's no, well, we have a regulator, the Food and Drug Administration, that helps to authorize the use of medications, evaluates for scientific value. We really don't have an equivalent to the this National Institute that you're describing that helps our system set pricing yeah. um, in any way and, and you know, essentially evaluates all of these medicines, medications, technologies for what value could possibly yeah. be. Uh, so that's part of the reason our costs are very high for medications and almost everything in our system is much more expensive than what you find in, in the British National Health Service. So Helen, you've been a citizen of the world. You've worked in many countries and yeah. you do know the U.S. system to some extent. Which would you rather be in, the U.S. medical system or the English one? And what would be your reasons? I mean, it's interesting because what I think about the U.S. medical system or the clinical system is like you see some of the best care, the most innovative care in the world, and you see some of the worst. So I feel like people do. In, we have a, a special relationship and people in England with the NHS, people say it's a national religion. When studies are done about what are you proudest of in England, people are more proud of the NHS than they are of the royal family, of the military. It's a very special thing for us and, and it's historical. So going back to after the Second World War, 1947, so many young people, a kind of generation, of, of young men were wiped out. And, and it's, it's like a feeling that the National Health Service, the NHS, was the only great thing, the, the positive thing that came out of the Second World War. And that how we feel is, we know it's not perfect, but it's our NHS and we can criticise it, but we don't like other people. <laughs> so if you ask me a question like, which system would I rather be part of? It's not a logical, it's a logical National answer. pride. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah just, because it's how we feel yeah. about our system. And again, you just look at elections for new national governments in Britain, election after election, the number one issue is the National Health Service. And any politicians that try to reduce it or, or change it, they do so at their absolute peril because of how we feel about it. So the basic 1947 social contract was they'll have a national service. It'll yes. serve everybody. It'll be funded by general taxation, which is progressive, meaning richer people pay more. Yeah. And it's free at the point of care. Yeah. And, and those principles have not been countermanded or, or dumped by any political party. No, nobody could. You couldn't. No, you absolutely, you couldn't do it. Lots and lots of things have changed in terms of how 
how that is enacted, but the basic um, principles are exactly the same. And I think the other thing about it is, like, it's not a safety net service. Everybody uses it, rather, whether rich or poor. And it means if you want a specialist service, you'd be so much more better off to get that in the public system, in the NHS, than you would in the private system. Because if you want to go to a clinician who does a high volume of a particular procedure that you need, because they, they will get better outcomes, then that's much more likely to be in the NHS. You mean like cancer care, heart surgery, or very specialized kinds of and intervention? Absolutely. In the private sector, in cancer care, very little cancer care in England is in the private sector. But what you would get in the private sector is access to, to certain chemotherapy drugs or treatments that are beyond the bounds of what the NHS um, um, would give. But people, yeah, people who are being treated for cancer, nearly all of them, are being treated in the NHS. What's the what do the clinicians feel about the NHS? If you're a nurse or a doctor in the in the National Health Service, what's the sentiment these days in the in the service? I remember this very stirring video during the pandemic of the public as at some point it's not a pointed hour, everybody in England got out on their balconies and was applauding the National Health Service. It was just such a striking image and so different on than I think how the American health service kind of works. We don't have a national health service, of course, but we have yeah. just it's so much more fragmented and disconnected. I, I thought of that also at halftime in the uh, London Olympics. Yeah. Uh, the opening, uh, was the opening of the Olympics? Yeah, it was. It was yeah. a celebration of the national health service. Yeah, That's how they chose to use that yeah. prime time at the Olympics. I really, I think Americans appreciate so healthcare, but I, we yeah. would not have seen that. Well, there's nothing to, there's no obvious way of doing that in the United States. Yeah. I mean, you could celebrate, you could argue that you could celebrate Medicare, Medicaid, that's probably the closest thing, or the VA maybe, but the Veterans Administration, but it's very hard to imagine an equivalent. There's no yeah. unified kind of system. National celebration. Yeah. Healthcare. And it's really hard for me having this conversation with you because I just feel in terms of, I am a ambassador of the NHS and I need to talk positively and well, so promote us, it. Tell us what's not working. So you, you've given us the party line here and tell us yeah. that's great, but tell us what's not really going right now with the NHS. So I think there are really significant uh, problems in our system and I think it's a system in transition. And even though I think a lot of things need to change, the basic premise that Don talked about in terms of being a service that's available to all, free at the point of need, I can't see that changing um, anytime soon. So the number one issue is workforce. Mm -hmm. So we have huge numbers of, of vacancies and um, doctors and nurses in England are, are paid much, much less than much lower salaries than they are in the USA. And certainly people, hospital lots of nurses, everybody is employed on a kind of standard, on a standard rate. Um, that, by the way, is the difference between the NHS again in England and the US, where not everybody is necessarily employed by the hospital that they're working at. The doctors, especially in the US, are often not employed by the hospital. But that's different, you're saying, yeah. in the NHS. Yeah. Everybody's employed by the hospital. Yeah. And, and some of the doctors will do additional private work, but yeah, everybody's employed. Mm -hmm. We haven't trained enough doctors and nurses. We've got a, later on this summer, we've got a new long-term workforce plan coming out around what we're going to do to uh, tackle this. And there's three elements to it. One is we need to be um, training far more clinicians, nurses and doctors. Secondly, we need to be uh, working very different. There's lots of things that doctors do at the moment that 
don't really need a doctor um, to to do them. What are some examples? If you looked high volume tests like endoscopy, do we use a fiber optic scope to look at someone's stomach or something? Yeah, yeah. Most of that work could be done by by well trained and supported nurses. A big shift going on from procedures carried out by doctors to procedures carried out by nurses. We're seeing nurse anaesthetists now. You say anesthesiologists. Yeah, you say anesthetists. And yeah. um, we're seeing nurses doing surgery, like carpal tunnel surgery. We're seeing podiatrists. Isn't that a quality problem? Doesn't quality go down on that? And um, it's the opposite because what you're talking about here is very high volume procedures, and people like podiatric nurses who do surgery are uh, on are very well trained to do certain procedures under the supervision of doctors the the outcomes actually tend to be better because do the doctors once to that surgery feel put out buttons are they feeling wait a minute that was my job and now somebody else is doing this sometimes when you do this that absolutely can happen but it's, it's common now in our system I, I do think it's one of the things that we need to be aware of sometimes when we talk about about clinical roles, we talk about people working, we say, at the top of your license, which means as a nurse doing maybe lots of very skilled, complex work that maybe previously would have been done by doctors. And if all you're doing is working at the top of your license, doing highly complex work the whole time, there's no sense of light and shade and just doing just very complex things all of the time. But you're also extending the top of the line. I hear you saying is not just working at the top of your license. Yeah. You're also saying, what is that? What the jobs to be done at the top of the license are also changing. So what yeah, they are formerly the top of license for a doctor or surgeon yeah. to do carpal release, yeah. for example. Now that's top of license for, for a nurse, nurse to do that. Yeah. Nursing surgeon. Yeah. Which is a so you're chain you're with this, I think it's sometimes called task shifting. You're moving tasks or jobs. Yes. Yes. From one profession to another. Yes. Yes. Changing what it means to yeah. be at the same time we need to look at the work that people do and just and make sure that when we are task shifting, that everybody's got the variety of things in their job where they're not just doing complex things all the time, but there's also time for other aspects that are less complex and learning and improvement and so on. But just, I just want to nail this yeah. down that you've got a kind of practice makes perfect theory here. The nurse who, who is allowed to and supported to do rather complex surgery, carpal yeah. tunnel syndrome yeah. surgery, if that's a wrist surgery. Yeah can actually do better than the doctors in part because they do more of that. They do them at high volume. Yeah, yeah, they do them at high volume. And and the other thing is there's no financial incentive as to whether um, the nurse or the doctor does the surgery because like in the US... You're paid a salary no matter what. Yeah, yeah, in our system, yeah. So I feel like if the nurse is doing the carpal tunnels surgery instead of the doctor, then the doctor's not getting paid to do the carpal tunnel surgery. But in our system, everybody is paid a salary, so it doesn't make any difference. That seems to be a big factor, big change, or a big difference between the two systems. That would cause a lot of trouble in the U.S. It's impressive to me that the National Health Service can do the change. Here, I don't even know how you get that. I think some jobs, Don, are are being cash shifted, if you will. That's a lot of, there's a lot of debate and discussion in state, in the U.S. and state licensing boards where tasks that were formerly done by physicians are now being moved to nursing staff. But it's an argument and it's a fight every time. I think with every single job that we're moving from one to the other, it's a fight. 
but increasingly because of the shortages of workforce, we're yeah. more happy to do that. But Helen, you said there was there were three things that yeah. in this report. So one was that to to do this task shifting yeah. and the other is training. Yeah. What was the third? Um, so the third one is how we how we look after our people so that we can um, we can retain people. People who are in the workforce. Yeah. Work. yeah. Make I'm, the jobs more doable. Yeah. The, the settings more supportive. Yeah, more and make the work more joyful. More, yeah. more joyful. Yeah. Back to Kadar's question about what needs to be better about the NHS, and I think our listeners may want to know that you, Helen, have had a career of decades in improvement. You're one of really, yeah. I think, global leaders of improvement in healthcare. What are some of the high agenda items for you right now that you're working on to improve care in England? The biggest shift I'd say that's going on in in our system is shifting away from the idea of the healthcare system that consists of hospitals and other places that you go to for care, to a system that is based in the community, near to people's homes, and enabling and supporting people to look after their own health much better. So we're seeing this massive shift in our system. So one of the things that that happened recently, it happened last July, is the way that the NHS is structured in England got changed. And we've moved into what are called integrated health systems. And what we used to have in the NHS was you had a hospital system and a primary care system and a mental health system. And they were all different systems that were organized as a hospital system or as a mental health system or as a primary care system. Separate from each other. Separate from each other. Yeah. 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 Separate leadership, separate financing. And what the new system means with integrated care is that like for a given population of people, people that live in Liverpool or people that live in North London, um, we have one system that's integrated and joined up. And the priorities that we're making for our um, NHS pound is based on what the needs are of people that live in Liverpool and people that live in North London. So, so, how, how does this work with I mean, I'm so curious about this because I, I've heard about the development of the integrative care boards. And it always it strikes me as a little bit, in some ways, terrifying. It was terrifying and also exciting. How do you, how does a system like the NHS make that kind of a big change, where you have these formerly their own, we might describe them as siloed activities, yeah. they have governance and leadership. And who gives way to create an integrated system like this? If you have a private care, a hospital, and social care, and other things, how, how do you actually create that type of cohesion across across them? Whether it might be lost. So I think that there are aspects of unchanging structures and there are aspects around changing relationships related to having a shared purpose. And both are important. So what we always do in the NHS is we change the structure and we're always changing the the structures. We uh, Yeah, it's yeah, it's quite it's cyclical. So in a sense, the structure has been changed. The accountabilities in the system and the funding system has changed. And in a sense, the structure forces the the different parts of the system to work together. And there there are 42 of the integrated care systems and you can really see um, differences uh, between them. Geographic, yeah. So it's like countries um, carved up into 42 different slot areas. And each integrated system takes care of the people who live in In that area. Yeah, yeah. So like changing the structures is a really important part of it. But the places, the integrated care systems that we see really moving ahead are the ones that are actually focused on relationships. And it's where 
different people from around the system, different providers of care around the system come together with shared purpose. And a particular aspect of that is the relationship between healthcare and social care. Because the way that our systems were set up, social care was set up as a different system to healthcare. What does the term social care mean, just for a second? Because that's not a term we would use in the US quite the way we use it. So social care means the care that is provided to people with social need okay, in a system. So it's everything from the welfare of children, care, cared for children, people with learning disabilities. And the biggest focus is on older people, social care of older people. It's about people that need and social care and support so and their own houses. Yeah. And um, yeah. And safeguarding. And yeah. Um, yeah. So it's quite an interesting system because in England, the healthcare, the NHS, it tends to be in the public sector, but social care tends to be in the private sector. So all the care homes and most of the like, aged care facilities are owned not by government. So mostly private sector, but also some voluntary sector. So Helen, as each of these 42 integrated care systems is trying to bring both of those under one roof? Yeah. It's, we're not under one roof in a sense that not, they're different kinds of organizations because social care, okay, is the responsibility of local government and healthcare is the responsibility of national government. So you've got two different kinds of accountability. You've got local democratic accountability and national democratic accountability in one system, uh, which can be quite tricky now. It uh, can be quite tricky. The way that relationships are created and who works with who. And what we're seeing is that where you've got really strong trusting relationships and um, driven by shared purpose in terms of the needs of the population, then people will change the budgets and do things in different ways because we actually were sharing the same goal mm-hmm. together. Yeah, I wonder if you could say another part of your career, Helen, has focused on really game-changing innovations that have been landmark in the NHS in England, but also global examples of really exciting things that we should all be looking at. And I'm just I'm curious, I'm, I'm pivoting a little bit here to to this different topic, but I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm always excited to hear from you about what's, what are you seeing right now that you think is emerging for the NHS in England that you think the world ought to know more about? So one of the things that I've been working on recently has been about self-referral. And what we mean is at the moment, if people need certain services, they have to be referred through primary care. And primary care family physicians in England, they act like gatekeepers to more specialist resources. So like really important job and everything has to go through a GP. But there's lots of care that people want and need. If you thought about weight management or you thought about podiatry or you thought about for back pain, like why do you need to go through a a GP? The patient knows what they need. And they- yeah, and they can self-refer um, straight to other services. But one of the things that I've been working on recently is on how we build these self-referral um, systems. And I think it's part of a kind of wider sense of like, how do you give more power to, to people that use services? How, like, why, why can't people make their own decisions about what they need and, and go down a path rather than having to go through lots of... Do, do you find that people, I mean, one concern with that, I think that people will inappropriately use a service or won't know when to go see a podiatrist or whatever. Is it, Are you finding that takes place or how do you accommodate or ensure that people are going to services at the right time otherwise? So there's things we have to do. So first of all, we have to have a, a system in place that works really well and really simply. 
and people need to know about it and it has to make sure that people go to the right place. And one thing that we have in England, which I think is fantastic, is that we have an NHS app and 80% of people in England now are signed up to the NHS app. Yeah. And what will become eventually, I think, is incredible because you'll be able to just do all, all your appointments on it. That alone sounds like an important story. Visualization of most of the like high charting and things like that in the U.S. on an average system is 50% at best. I've seen 80%. People have now signed up. Yeah. And yeah. And it means that if you're going to self-refer, you would do that through the yeah. NH, out through the app. And that eventually, like all your clinical records will be on that, but your hospital records, your primary care records, you get access to everything through that one. I think the potential of it is outstanding, really. So we would love to hear more about your work and maybe get you back here sometime, but unfortunately, we're running out of time now. We tend to ask our guests in closing the same question, which is about optimism and pessimism. The National Health Service, like most healthcare systems around the world is under tremendous pressure right now. You've mentioned some of the defects that need to be dealt with. Are you optimistic about what's going to happen or are you more on the pessimistic side of the scale? I'm I'm a realistic optimist, I would say. (laughs) I don't underestimate some of the challenges and problems that we have in our system. Uh, But what I'd also say is we're coming up to the 75th birthday of the NHS now. And I think but it just has this kind of incredible strength all the way through. And this basic set of systems or this basic set of principles that, you know, like everybody adheres to around, it's there for everybody. It's there when we need it. We don't pay for it. And so many things have changed. And yet that remains um, constant. And you don't see that change? No. And one of the things that makes me optimistic is the people in the NHS because they're incredible. And whenever there's a challenge, people step up to it. So yeah, I think there's a a whole series of particular challenges in our system at the moment. I think in terms of uh, waiting times, in terms of workforce, I think we've got some pretty challenges, industrial, challenging industrial disputes um, going on. I think it isn't the- Labor management. Yeah. It's not the easiest time um, um, for the NHS, but looking forward, I hope it will be there for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that, because it's, yeah, I think healthcare is a right. And I'm proud to be part of a system that, with all its faults and flaws and current problems, is there for people, just full of the most incredible people with purpose and and focus. Helen, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Thank you for being our Turn On Lights. And we look forward to speaking with you again sometime in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You know, Don, the thing that struck me about Helen and her really impassioned, I think, discussion about the NHS is just how much pride she feels in it. It's incredible. I, everyone I speak to about the NHS feels this kind of special love for the system. And it's it feels so palpably different than almost anything we have in American healthcare. The professionals, all of the doctors, nurses, et cetera, we, we might love what we do in, in healthcare in, in the United States, but to love the system the way that Helen loves the NHS is something that is truly different. The, the more common American point of view is I love my doctor, but I don't love the system. That's right. That's, that's right. We have research that shows that that's the reply. But here, it's a marvelous puzzle. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to someone from the conservative side of the political spectrum yeah. or the left wing in England. They No one seems to question the fundamental yeah, is essentially political suicide to go against the essential tenets of 
of the NHS. I mean, the way that Helen described it is you can't violate what was established so many years ago now. And in the US, we're busy relitigating what Medicare and Medicaid should do every other week. It feels yeah. like. At least for now, that's the case. That maybe there'll be a, a threat in the longer run. The NHS is under enormous pressure right now. But I've noticed even under that pressure, these basic tenants, and, and the three that I always hear is what Helen said, which is it'll be available to everyone. So this yeah. guarantee that you have healthcare if you're there. It comes with the, it, it, it's a right, absolute right. Yeah. And second, it's supported by general taxation. That's a kind of public commitment, a little bit like our Medicare system. By everyone, yeah. but, but everyone contributes. And because the tax system is progressive, it means that richer people pay more of the bill. And then this third remarkable part of it is free at the point of service, yeah. which I think in the US we regard it as economically naive, that somehow that's a way to assure running off the cliff of demand, and yet it, it hasn't happened. And it doesn't happen. That was also another striking part of this, which is that is absolutely a, a fixation of ours, that if you make it free, people will overuse and will call to all kinds of problems with our system. And that is just not true. Um, mm-hmm. The evidence in this case says exactly the opposite, not exactly the opposite, but you're not, they're not finding that problem. So there are a lot of similar problems. There's yes. a workforce problem. That's a universal problem. That's true as much in the UK as it is in the US. I'm sure there's differences in how it's experienced, but it's absolutely a global issue cost issues. Uh, that's a global problem. There's, so there are a lot of, there are some similarities despite the major differences in how our systems are structured. Uh, I can't help wondering, is this something special about England or the UK as a whole? Or is there some culture there that goes back to you know, the millennia ago w- on which they can build this sense of solidarity or could this happen here? In but the, she is, uh, the other part of the story that was interesting is that this comes out of World War II. You know, yes. Amateur historians that we may be the same thing kind of happened in the United States. I mean, it took a little bit longer in the 60s. It took us till the 60s, the U.S. to create Medicare and Medicaid. But again, a public program that sort of emerges in the post-war yeah. period. But I wonder what the difference is here between these. I don't know. There was a moment. I mean, Lyndon Johnson took advantage, sadly, yeah. of uh, Kennedy's uh, assassination, which had it kind of the nation was rocked. And there was this very weird political alignment at that time in which uh, he had control of both houses of Congress, the country needed leadership. We were still mourning the loss of JFK and he just acted, he took the ball and we ended up with a national health insurance program of our own called Medicare, but it covers only part of the population. But there was a, was a moment of advantage here. England was in this really bad shape post-war recovery and they, they decided to go for it. Very remarkable story. Two national treasures, the NHS in the UK or in England and the Medicare in the U.S. Yeah, when we say, you know, the rhetoric in the U.S. has shifted in part to Medicare for all. The people on the left are saying, well, okay, let's have insurance for everyone. We have it for older people. Let's just expand that to everyone. And of course, that's the uh, political battlefield right now. Well, we've got a lot to learn from other parts of the world, for sure. And insert a lot to learn from the National Health Service in the U.K. And we're glad to have folks like Helen help translate. Interpret, tell the myths from the realities. Huh? That's right. Thanks. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Kater. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 
Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org.